0: The first Bible reading tonight comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, and that can be found on page 6 of your zines. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and is on page seven. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you, because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Jacob. Well, let me extend my welcome to Emma's It's great Uh, to see you here. My name is Rowan. I'm the Assistant Minister here at the Garrison Church. And this afternoon we're going to spend some time briefly reflecting on that second reading you'll see there on page 7. I think each of us last year probably had a go-to series of some kind on uh, some stream service that brought us a little bit of joy in the midst of a strange year. For me, last year, that was an Apple TV show called Lasso. It's worth a month's free subscription if you uh, just wanna watch it and binge it, as often we do. Uh, It's a comedy about an American football coach who moves to the UK to coach a Premier League soccer team. No experience. But he's brought across and he's brought across because the football club owner after a series of affairs his wife and him divorce and she gets a club and so she wants to sabotage this thing and what better way to sabotage it than to bring an american football coach over to coach a premier league soccer team it's funny it's a bit twee uh, it nails the cultural difference between the UK and the States. It's worth a watch. But what's interesting as the series develops is the way that it works on you, or rather the way that the lead character, the coach, works on you. He's, he's a flawed and, and a, um, a twig character in many sense, but he's also, believably, someone who is very virtue-seeking in his character and in his style of leadership. And actually through the series, in a cynical world, particularly as it's presented in England, uh, we see this virtuous leader emerge in the way that he leads uh, this team and wins them over. It's kind of heartwarming. Do watch it if you want the old heart warmed. But 2020 has been an interesting year for the church. See, the thing about Lasso is that it gives you a sense of what the character and conduct of a leader could be. But 2020 has seen an astonishing amount of reports, particularly in the Christian world, of Christian ministers, pastors and leaders being removed from leadership for all kinds of horrendous things, be they abuse of a spiritual kind through bullying and intimidation and creating cultures of fear and control, or worse, through acts where their integrity has been questioned and they've been removed from positions of leadership. And this has happened across the spectrum, and it's very sobering, very, very sobering. So this is not just high-profile Christian leaders, but also in Christian environments of our own constituency. And it has a huge impact on the church. It unsettles her. And it also brings huge damage to church members, but also through bringing disillusionment. And for many, they might begin to doubt their faith and deconstruct it all together. And perhaps that's part of your story. Perhaps someone in leadership within the church has let you down and it's unsettled you. And rightly so, because something has gone wrong. The lives of Christian ministers, pastors, leaders, I'll use those words interchangeably throughout this afternoon, matter. Their treatment of people matter. And in today's passage, Paul outlines what genuine Christian ministry should look like. But before we look into it, perhaps it's helpful for you just to bring to mind what you think should characterize Christian leadership. What should it look like? What characteristics, gifts, methods, manner should someone in? Christian leadership have, because today will be a great opportunity to compare and contrast that with Paul's and with God's word. But it's a sobering message, particularly uh, I've found it in both preparation and as we consider this theme. Well, just to paint a brief bit of context, Emma helpfully reminded us that Thessalonians is one of Paul's first letters and arguably the first to be written in the New Testament before the Gospels. Paul We know from this letter and from other writings in Acts 17 has planted this church in this city of Thessalonica he's brought the gospel there he's proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah who rose from the dead and we've seen that people have put their trust in the Lord Jesus in Acts 17 we're told that some Jews God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women believed And Paul is said to have been there for three weeks, but then very abruptly, he leaves. And in his letter today, we see him give reasons for his belief. But if you read that second reading in Thessalonians, Paul's tone can seem a little defensive. See, there were many teachers and philosophers around the ancient world who travelled and amassed followers, but they did so for false motives. They were known to amass followers for what they got out of it. And as you reconstruct this letter, because we're not told everything explicitly, it seems that Paul's response here, the defensive tone, is that allegations of him being like one of these teachers have potentially been made. And so he, he speaks about the nature of his ministry But he does it for a reason because he wants them to persevere in their faith if paul had come for three weeks and then one night just took off well how is he any different from any of these teachers that have amassed followers and taken benefit to themselves well this is paul's apologetic as it were for why he is not like them but he does it so to encourage them to persevere in their faith and so what we're seeing you see outlined at the bottom of page seven he focuses on three things firstly his message second his motivation and thirdly his his manner or his method amongst them and we're just going to quickly sight through those things and draw some reflections from them well, how is Paul distinct? How is he not like these other teachers? Well, firstly, Paul is clear on his, his message. In verses 1 and 2, we see this. Social pressure, we know, makes us acquiesce on all kinds of things. You know, there's, there's menial things that we, we crumble on, but particularly in certain relational dynamics at times, we can acquiesce on our convictions when there's pressure upon us to say certain things, to be silent about certain things. We've all felt that at some point. But what we see here is that Paul has just come from Philippi, he's just experienced suffering for proclaiming the gospel and persecution, yet when he comes, he doesn't crumble under the pressure, but rather he keeps clear on his message. In verse 2 he says, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, and outrageously there is endured mockery or shame. But he says, as you know, with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. First thing that marks Paul's ministry out from others is that He didn't crumble on his message, or he didn't acquiesce on it, or he didn't sugarcoat it. But rather, he sought to declare to them the truth of the gospel with the assistance of God through his Holy Spirit. In Acts 17, we're told that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. That is the message which Paul came and proclaimed. He'd just been driven out of town and persecuted. And this very message is a message that we read in other parts of the New Testament. He experienced horrendous treatment, but he never crumbles on the message. With the help of God, he dares to tell them the gospel, words and teaching that we just declared in the Apostles' Creed. Paul has been entrusted with this message this precious message, and he passes it on. He doesn't tamper it or treat it as he pleases. You can imagine if someone lent you something significant, you know, the use of a house or a car, well, it's not for me to to use that any way I would like. I've been entrusted with this precious thing, and so therefore I will treat it with the respect that it demands from those who gave it to me and in a similar way as an apostle of Christ God has commissioned Paul with a message a precious message he's been entrusted with that and he's saying that he's been faithful in sharing that to others telling people the gospel in the face of strong opposition and so how is Paul unlike these other leaders why can they have confidence in him well he hasn't crumbled under pressure our world is increasingly antagonistic to the gospel and Jesus teaching but a Christian minister pastor or leader won't mess with the message to appease other people's sensibilities they've been entrusted with something precious and they are to pass that on in its fullness but ministers don't have a monopoly on this in our present moment many of you might feel pressure to acquiesce on the things that you believe to appease other people's sensibilities. And Paul is an example for us here and we too should pray as Paul did to to dare to share the gospel even in the face of opposition. So firstly a Christian minister won't mess with the message. Secondly, how is Paul different from these other teachers and philosophers. In verses 3 to 7, we see that he has a different motivation. See, what will will drive Christian ministers and and believers to hold firm? Well, it's a right motivation. Paul spells it out for us in verses 3 to 4. He says, "'For the appeal we make does not spring from error "'or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. "'On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God,' to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. So in the face of allegations of false motives, Paul is saying, we speak as those approved by God, seeking to please God who tests our hearts and not men. There were many itinerant teachers out there with false motives. And they employed their their eloquent speaking skills for personal gain, tricking people or, or, or tickling their ears to get stuff out of them. It's a mask, we're told here, for greed and pride. And sadly, although the methods may have changed over time, tragically, sometimes motivations have not. People in Christian leadership continue to use their influence, power, education, eloquence and charisma under the the pretense of good or even generosity, even the gospel, for self-gain. This can be in the form of Christian celebrity, the great irony that that is. Some pastors' Instagram accounts are a catalogue of who they're with, where they're at and what they're wearing. Just look at the hashtag Preacher Sneakers to uh, see what I mean. But perhaps it's more in in our constituency or in in the institutions that we're we're part of, it's more uh, displayed in different ways through power. Influence, education, eloquence or charisma is wielded to get one's way or to inhibit others through bullying, domineering, intimidation Uh, Or worse still, through sexual abusive behaviors. It happens. And some of those things, they may even think it is for a, a greater good. But the fruit of it actually reveals what's going on. It's a mask, we're told here, for greed and pride. And tragically, there are many church members and staff who have suffered under such leaders. When one uh, experiences this, it's understandable that their faith is shaken. And if such allegations were made of Paul, that he had left them, that maybe he had been there to get some kind of monetary gain, well, this could shake the faith of this young church. And so Paul hits these allegations head on and he denies such motives. He says, we're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. He defends his ministry. He has acted above board. He is sought to please God, not man. But then we see he's not sought to use them either for greedy gain. In verse five, he says, you know, we never used flattery, nor did we put a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. And he goes on in verse nine to say, even though as apostles, we could have received financial support from you, we chose not to. It's not a, a right that, he, waves, you know, uh, that he, he wields, but rather he waves it so that he would not be an obstacle to them. Rather, he describes himself like a young child that is innocent and gentle among them. Paul addresses these potential allegations by saying that a Christian minister won't mess with the motive they seek to please God rather than man. And this moves us to our our final point, Paul's ministry manner and, and method in verses 8 and 12. In the face of these allegations, he's both defended his ministry, his message, that he hasn't acquiesced on it, his motivation, that it's not from greed or pride, but seeking to please God rather than man. That's about his character. And then he now speaks about his conduct among them, his manner and his his method. And what's interesting here is that sometimes I think we could use the um, I'm not fearing man, I'm I'm fearing God, to be an excuse to treat people badly. But Paul doesn't do that here. In fact, in highlighting his manner, he, he highlights his gentleness and his tender care for them. That he fears God and not man, that he seeks to please God and not man doesn't make him indifferent to people it means that he actually cares for them more he tenderly cares for them and we're given here probably the most tender tender pastoral portrait in the New Testament a portrait that we will see should describe every Christian leader and its familial language It's that of a mother and a father and what's striking here is that Paul adopts a family metaphor in the New Testament. Paul most commonly describes the church through the metaphor of of family. Robert Banks, a New Testament scholar, writes: the comparison of the Christian community with a family must be regarded as the most significant metaphorical usage of all. It reveals the essence of his thinking about community. And this is reflected in the way that then Paul speaks about his manner and his method amongst them. Firstly, he describes himself as a mother, particularly a nursing mother. In verse 8, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. The children a mother holds are the things that are most dear to her. The ones she nurtures and cherishes and feeds from her own body. A mother's life is bound up with the life of a child. And that is the language that Paul chooses to adopt here. His life is bound up with them. He says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. The Christian leader is to have a strong bond of affection and care for the congregation which involves being part of their lives, that they might know them, see them, and have access to them. Their very self should be committed to their care and flourishing. Paul's ministry manner is is of tender care. But we know that, and many a nursing mother here can attest that it's hard work. And that is what is required of those in Christian leadership as well. And finally, he speaks of his, his method. He speaks of himself as a father. Fatherhood involves modelling. Many of us might have negative experiences of our father, but a father in the best sense is one that is encouraging, comforting and urging. And that's what we see him describing himself as with them. He said, he and his colleagues have been acting with integrity. They're holy, righteous, and blameless. That doesn't mean they're perfect, but they're an example of someone walking in the faith, an integrity of character and conduct. But have you noticed his way with them? How does he champion them? Well, we see that in verse 12. He encourages, he comforts, and he urges. He says, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging Comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Again, notice how tender this this image is. Encouraging, comforting and urging. You know, you, you don't accomplish much by berating your children. But you seek to encourage, to comfort, to urge when we ride home on our bikes as a family, we've got to go up the underpass, and it's a hill. And so I'm often on the bike and my children are riding next to me. And, and as you're going up the hill, you're giving words of encouragement and you're, you're urging and you're, you're pushing them up the hill as you do it. Um, there's often workers having an afternoon drink there as well who love to heckle me as I do it. Come on, Dad, get up there, Dad. So, you know, I like to think that they're encouraging, comforting and urging me as well. We're all sharing the love. But as a, as a father, that's how you seek to see your children become the best them. You, you encourage them, you comfort them, you urge them. There's moments of reproving, of course, at different points but it's tender. In, in Lasso, you, you see this beautifully over, over the series. He's warm and kind. You keep waiting for that locker room scene where he you know kicks the locker in anger, using threats, intimidation, and bullying, but they never come up. He's patient, he's taught them, he leads by examples, and he's keen on them being their best them, not through coercion, bullying, or intimidation. The Apostle Peter writes, shepherd the flock of God, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. Paul, through his example and his way with them, seeks for them to be their best them in Christ. Fault finding is not the job of a Christian leader. Fault finding is not the job of a a Christian family member, even though sadly, it is often part of our Australian culture. We should each want to seek each other to be the best possible versions of ourselves in Christ that we can. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up. So Paul in the face of allegations he's spoken about his, his character, both in terms of keeping with the message and the right motivation, but also his conduct amongst them, his manner and his methods. Well, what can we do to draw some conclusions from this? Well, Paul defends himself against these allegations so that they don't lose heart. And I don't know where you're at, but perhaps you've lost heart and trust in the leadership of the church be it individuals, institutions. And there have been many examples where it's fallen short and we've fallen short. And so as we consider this, I thought of a few to use a word of Rob Forsyth, learnings that we can take away for us. The first one is for those in, in, in Christian leadership. N.T. Wright, in his little commentary on this book, asks, the question for all Christian ministers is this, if we were to describe ourselves like this, would anyone recognize what we are talking about? A sobering application. In many ways, Christian leaders will fail, but this should be a goal before us. But it also speaks to the necessity of transparency and accountability Christian leadership as well. The lack of these things has been a common thread in the mess that you see with the past years failures. But what about for for all of us? Well firstly today's passage should shape our expectations of Christian leadership. What characteristics, gifts, manner and method we hold them to? Do they line up with with Paul's? We will fall short those in leadership in many ways. Uh, And there will be moments where we need to be held to account. And at times there will be moments to speak up. But let's let Paul's list here be that which shapes our expectations of Christian leadership. But secondly, today's passage should inspire us to become like Paul, as he models to us Christ. Throughout Paul's letters, he urges his readers to imitate him as he seeks to imitate Christ. New Testament scholar Jason Hood writes, the New Testament provides a standard, a master who provides a perfect paradigm, but it also provides accessible models. We have a master, a perfect paradigm in Jesus whom we are to imitate and reflecting on Philippians 2 would be a good way forward this week to do. But we also in the language of this writer have accessible models in the apostle Paul, but also amongst one another in the church community. And that's why it's so important that we need to turn up with each other. He continues to write, if time spent with Paul and the unspeakable blessing of having scripture written directly to a congregation did not remove the need to have flesh and blood models, following someone on Twitter and faithfully listen to sermon series on the web will not suffice for our discipleship. We need accessible models in one another as we seek to imitate Christ. So we can look to Paul's beautiful picture here of his motive, his manner, and his methods. And again, Christian leaders don't have a monopoly here. We have so much to learn from each other. This Wednesday, Myra Dimitri, who is the oldest member in this parish, she's been attending the morning service for over 40 years, is in a nursing home over at Paddington. I went across with Robert. Robert is in the morning congregation. He's 78 years old. And to watch his manner and method with Myra, an old friend whom he loves, whom he thoughtfully brings things for, whom he cares for, whom he opens the scriptures with and reads, who orders her, her cappuccino with one sugar with the biscuit on the side. And just to tenderly Wait upon her and care for her. It's an example to me. We need each other to imitate as we seek to imitate Christ. May God grant us the grace to follow that perfect paradigm of our Lord Jesus. Amen.